All right. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, I recognize it's Palm Sunday, and uh, I kind of went back and forth as to whether or not to do a special message on Palm Sunday, as I've done typically in the past. But um, I, I believe it's very fitting to stay right where we are in the book of Hebrews, and I hope that will come uh, to understanding as we kind of go through this text today. Uh, because as we come to Easter, uh, then we, we understand that's what it's truly about. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, as we've been learning through the book of Hebrews, that Christ is superior. Christ is enough. It's all about Him. And so uh, why would we not stay in a book where we've been learning this very thing and then uh, in this closing chapter today, uh, that comes into clear focus. Christ is sufficient. He is superior. It's all about Him. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. What are you most afraid of? Just think on that for a second. What are you most afraid of? When I was a little kid, uh, I know this because I've read my baby book. By the way, anybody do baby books anymore? Is that still done? Okay, so good. good. Who else had, growing up, your mom did a baby book on you? A couple of us. Okay, a handful of us. All right. Um, yeah, see, this is what happens to the baby of the family, though. See, my, my brother's baby book was completed until probably he was like 13. I don't know. Or, <laughs> mine stops at like three and a half. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what happens to the younger kid. You know, mom's kind of, eh, you know. I feel your pain, babies of the family. But I, do, I did find this, actually, in my baby book as I was reading. My first phrase, my first sentence. Anybody remember their first sentence? You, you, know, you may not remember it necessarily, but, but you, you know what it is. Well, I found mine, and my first phrase, my first sentence... Good, good guess. In case you didn't hear that, I'm hungry. Yeah, that was definitely my first words, but that sounded more like, ah, ah. anyway, some of you babies will get that joke. My first phrase was actually, dog bite. I know, I was a gifted kid. Dog bite. In fact, I used to crawl into my mom and dad's bed at night, wake them up in the middle of the night, and whisper quietly in their ear, dog bite. I don't know, but it's uh, definitely my first words, dog bite. Now, thinking back on it, I do recall, and I don't remember exactly what age, but I do remember we did have a lot of dogs. We grew up in my great aunt's farm, and we're, you know, hundreds of acres. We were back in the woods about a quarter of a mile down a dirt road. It was an awesome way to grow up as a kid. We had dogs, we had cats. I mean, just, it was a farm. It was awesome. But I remember one day, I do remember this very vividly, my brother pulling the tail of one of the dogs. Yeah, not a good idea. Bible warns you about pulling the ears. Uh, I don't see anything in there about pulling the tail, but I can tell you from experience, don't pull the tail of a dog. Cause dog bite. <laughs> 
In fact, it took a nice little chunk out of his cheek, and I remember going back in the house, and it was summertime, it was hot, and back in those days, kids, there was no such thing as air conditioning in my house, all right? Maybe it was in your house, you were uptown, but we had the big box fan, all right, at best, and it was hot. And I remember sitting there, my, little, my, my, my older brother, reading his little brother, reading me this story. And as I looked, because mom was going back to get something to put on his face from where the dog had bitten half his cheek off, and there were gnats just, you know, and it's like, Ugh. So now you can understand why dog bite stuck with me. I was afraid of a dog biting me. Even into my, uh, you know, older age, I... Um, I, I, Rottweilers, you know, those Rottweilers are just, ooh, there was something about those, you know, Doberman Pinchers, you know, I was like, ah, and, you know, I just, man, did not want a dog to bite me. I don't know what you're afraid of, and maybe it's the dog, maybe it's something else, but I, I venture to guess there is something that frightens you. And fear can be healthy, definitely kept me from pulling on dogs' tails, but it can also be paralyzing. It can be unhealthy. But what about your walk as a Christian? If you're here and you're a believer, I want to ask you the question in the context of that. What are you afraid of, Christian? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of when it comes to being bold with your faith? You know, we tend to compartmentalize Christianity today. We tend to kind of just, well, that's what we do at church on Sunday. Or in certain contexts, among certain people, we, we kind of keep it private because, you know, hey, that's between me and the Lord. Some people will say, my faith is private. Is that truly why Jesus Christ came to this world to redeem mankind? So that we would be silent? That we would be quiet about our faith? Or does He call us to a radical transformation? Does He call us to live out our faith? To be bold? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, to quote Scripture. And yet I find that oftentimes Christians are paralyzed in fear. And therefore they don't live out their faith as we should. You know, the Scriptures tell us in Proverbs 29-25, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. I would venture to guess that the one thing that uh, scares us the most, uh, other than daddy calling down his children in the middle of service, <laughs> is the fear of man. We're afraid of what others might think. And therefore, we don't live out our faith as we should. And we compartmentalize it. And we hide it. There is something we should be afraid of. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and and body in hell. Guys, if there's ever been a time 
when we need to return to a healthy fear, it's in the day in which we live. We do not fear God as we should. We're more afraid of what man thinks than what our God thinks, than what our God has called us to. The Bible teaches us reverential fear. Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The reason we gather in, believers, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we might gain understanding so that we know how to live in the world in which we live. How to live out our faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews is composed of uh, a number of warning passages. In fact, there are five specific ones. Uh, We are looking at the fifth now in context and where we are in the study. And when you're studying the book of Hebrews, for those of you who maybe got in on it late and you go back and you're reading through, you may want to mark some of those areas because it's a good way to study this letter. There's great warning. And as you recall the context of this letter, you've got a predominantly Jewish audience. Again, they're on the fence. They're not sure. Should they go back into Judaism? Should they move forward in their faith in Christ? Surrendering completely? And so there's many warnings that are given throughout. I love MacArthur's commentary and he gives us this outline and I want to use it this morning as we reflect and recap on these warning passages. The first one he gave us was, in the scriptures was neglect. He warns the people. He says, look, do not neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Those, that Jewish audience has been teetering, and, 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 and they're, they're neglecting. You know what? They, some, they just don't really care. There are those in the group who some of them just don't care. They're just neglecting it. And I venture to guess that that is very true right here in our midst today. There are some people sitting here this morning that you know what? They really don't really care about what's going on this morning. They don't really care about what God's Word has to say to them. And a lot of that is because they've grown up in it. This Jewish audience, no doubt, they were, they were in this group of, of people. And, and in that time period, no doubt, life completely revolved around that subculture. And that subculture had pulled themselves away from the Jewish culture. And therefore, that's why they were being persecuted. And there were some there in the midst of that group of believers who were not believers... There were many who were there, maybe family members and friends who were traditionalists, and they were ready to get back into Judaism, but they were still there in the midst of that group. And just like in this group, there are those who are neglecting. There are many people sitting in churches all across the world today that are neglecting the great salvation that's being offered. They could care less. They're more interested in the things of this world. They're more interested in the things that consist around their life as opposed to the things that would draw them to know the Lord. 
And so they neglect. And there's a great warning in this book to those who would neglect so great a salvation. There's another warning passage of unbelief. You remember he said, don't be like the Israelites who made it to the promised land. I mean, they came out of Egypt. They, they exercised faith in that and they, they began to journey out and they even crossed the Red Sea and, and eventually they get to the, to the land of, of Canaan, the, the promised land. And instead of going in, you remember the report from the twelve, two believed, ten had unbelief. And the rest shrunk back. And as a result of that shrinking back, as a result of that unbelief, they did not enter into the promises God had for them. And so we see great warning in that. And the writer is saying, don't be like that. Jesus Christ has come. He's the fulfillment of these things. And yet you stand right there at the door of opportunity. By faith you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can repent of your sins. Put your complete trust and surrender in Him and His finished work. But for whatever reason, they shrink back in doubt and unbelief. No doubt there are some here today that does not matter what type of logical arguments we put forth, no, no matter what type of philosophical or biblical arguments we put forth, there are some people who just do not believe. And they're condemned already, Scripture says, because they do not believe in the only one who can save them. There's great warning in the passage. Chapter 3, we see that specifically. Do not depart from God in an evil heart of unbelief. Don't be unbelieving. And so we're warned again today. And then we see also in chapters 5 and 6 that tradition. They were hanging on to the, to the tradition, to the forms of, of Judaism. And that's why you recall in the Scriptures, in Hebrews, how he's been arguing all these things from the Old Testament. And saying, look, those types are just shadows, man. The substance has come. Why would you hang on to the forms that pointed to the real? The fulfillment. But they're comfortable in their tradition. And so they hang on there. And no doubt across... The world today, there are many who hold on to their tradition. They will not move forward in their faith because they're not familiar with this or they're not familiar with that. But if it's truth, it's truth. And truth cannot be shaken. But yet too often times, we hold on to the, to the shadow. We'll die on the hill of some traditional stand when truth is at stake. And we're warned not to be that way. Instead of going on in relationship, this audience was wanting to hang on to religion. And there are many still today who hold to the form of religion. Well, this is the way I was raised. This is what my parents raised me in. Or this is what I grew up knowing. Or I'm in this part of the world. And, this is... and look, truth has come and they reject it. They refuse it because they want their religion more than they want the relationship. And so there's a warning about tradition. The warning passages continue on. And we, we found in, in chapters 10 and 11, impatience. And there's a warning not to be impatient. Endure. They got impatient. They began to drift from the fellowship. You remember Hebrews 10, 25? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
even more so as you see that day approaching. The intent and purpose for them to gather together was to stir up the, so that they would exercise good works, that their faith would be strengthened. And many had grown impatient. And so they fell to the wayside. Guys, there are many today that have grown impatient. Many of you started running your race well, and there were times when the saints would gather together to encourage one another, and you were there in the midst. And now you find yourself drifting. That's what he's warning them about. That group of believers now forsaking the assembling. It's not a religious thing, it's a relational thing. But instead of having fear of God, we have fear of man. And we forsake. We neglect. There's a warning. And then we come to this last one. That's supposed to say number five. Fear. Chapter 12. Remember, they've been talking about in chapter 11 about those who didn't grow impatient. In fact, those great hall of faith, they endured, they persevered. That's why we have chapter 11. Look at their example. Then we come into chapter 12. And he reminds us again to look to Christ. You want a perfect example? Jesus Christ is that perfect example. And we're encouraged to continue to run our race with our eyes fixed upon the Lord. And you remember last week, we were trying to encourage you to finish that race well. Discipline was discussed. And no doubt, many of those believers at that time were encouraged with that response in the letter. But there were also those who were fearful because they didn't want to go through persecution. They didn't want to suffer. And therefore, they were departing, falling away. Showing that they never truly were born-again believers. And there's fear. And so we come to today's passage, and we're going to see a contrast in this fear. A healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. And so he's going to continue this warning in this theme as we look at uh, the passage today. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Follow along, if you would, in the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. And the things which cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Father, I pray, please... Allow Your Word to not return void as You have promised. And I pray, Lord, that You will shake our souls to the point of understanding. Lord, be our teacher today. In Jesus' name. This book can be broken up into two sections. It's a real simple outline. And it's right here in the text. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Verses 18 through 21, we find Mount Sinai. And in verses uh, 22 to 29, we see Mount Zion. Let's take a look at this. Mount Sinai. Now you remember the story, you remember the account. If you want to know more, you can go back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Feel free to turn there if you'd like and you can peruse through that. But I'm just going to kind of give you a synopsis of that. You remember Moses has led the people through the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai. And he's called up on the mountain. And he's given special grace, if you will, to come into the presence of God. And God tells him to go down the mountain and warn the people. In fact, let's... Let's take a look there. Take your Bibles. Let's go to to Exodus 19. Let's begin our reading in, in Exodus 19, verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow... Let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. I guess God believes in borders. Anyway. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So he's saying, look, you're going to set a boundary. And if those people cross that and actually touch that mountain's base, they will die. 
Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Even an animal that crossed that barrier would be killed. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves. Let the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, These people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And then, of course, you know, he, chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments and his presenting of that. What's the point of Mount Sinai? Guys, we see the power of God on display. We see that, this, that, that, that God has, has come down and He is delivering His Mosaic Law. And think about the letter of Hebrews. What has the writer been doing time and time and time again? He's pleading with his audience. Saying, guys, that stuff is a representation. And at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, we see a representation of the holiness of God. And no man can stand. Why do you think the law is given? It's to show us that we are not God. We fall woefully short of the glory of God. This is why I love imploring the way of the master approach in evangelism because it's rightly using the law of God. Have I, ever told, have I ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? If you've ever told a lie, you are guilty before a holy God because God is a God of truth. He is a God of pure holiness. And yet... One lie condemns us. Have you ever stolen, taken something that doesn't belong to you? doesn't matter the value. If it did not belong to you and you took it, that is stealing. Thou shalt not steal. It's all God's anyway. Anyway. 
Have you ever used God's name as a euphemism? OMG is a phrase today, and it's used often. Guys, that is in vain. That is not honoring the name of God. The scribes used to not even write the name. Vows were added later. They were afraid to say the name. There was great fear in the presence of a holy God. God says He will not. You will not be blameless in that day of judgment if you've used God's name in vain. And through the list of those commandments, we see on display the holiness, the character of God, and we see our short woefulness that we cannot measure up and we do not live up. That's why it's compared to a mirror. And if you hold up a mirror to your face and you look into the mirror, as we're to look into the law, we see a reflection. And if I look into the mirror and I see in the mirror that, oh wow, that's really ugly, it's not the mirror's fault. Right? Thank you, sir. It's not the mirror's fault. It's not the law's fault. The law is simply showing me who I am. And if there's something wrong when I look into the mirror, let's get it fixed. And so God at Mount Sinai presents His holiness. And, he, and we see this. And we see this great judgment. And we see this great power on display. And we see man woefully short. In fact, it was so bad. Did you pick up on what the people said? The people said, Make him stop. Make him stop, Moses. Don't... don't we don't want him to talk to us. You talk to us. You go talk to him and then you talk to us. Because we can't... I, I don't want to hear it. And even Moses in Hebrews... Go back over to Hebrews. Did you pick up on what Moses said about this encounter? Look in verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. This is a man whom God chose and had a relationship with and was the great deliverer. And yet he too shook and trembled in the very presence of God as he should. He was on holy ground. And guys, we've lost that fear of God. And so we see here in this section of Scripture that the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people, okay, alright, you want to go back to Judaism? You want to go back to that? Let me remind you of how God's people were under the law. Let me take you about, you want to go back to Mount Sinai? You want to go back to where the law was delivered? Let's go back there. Let's think about how that was. That's not freedom, gang. That's bondage. Why would you go back there? And his whole argument in Hebrews has been this. Just like the people of Israel, when they came to full knowledge, they shrunk back, they neglected, they had unbelief, they were impatient, they were afraid. 
And because of these things, they did not inherit that which was being offered. They did not have faith in the coming Messiah. And now that Messiah has come, are you Jews, are you people that are hearing the truth going to have the full knowledge and revelation of what the truth is because the full knowledge has come? Those elementary principles of the Old Testament were simply the ABCs to bring you to faith in the Messiah. And if you're going to neglect that and go back into that, you're going to neglect what it's pointing you to. There is nothing that can save you. There is no hope for you. Then you will stand in judgment one day at the foot of Mount Sinai. And guys, no one stands at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because we fall short of the glory of God. The law condemns us. The law tells us that we do not measure up. Paul himself said, I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. He tells us other in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 3, where he talks about that it is, the, that it is a, a ministry of death, if you will. It's a curse. Because none of us can measure up. Now, again, I don't blame the law. The law's good in and of itself. It just reveals what I'm not, what I am, and I, I am not good. It reveals to my heart, it reveals to me that my heart is wicked, desperate, deceitful. Who can know it? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah in the presence of God. Guys, we dare not stand in the presence of God. Even the high priest had special things that had, they had to go through before they could go into the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, again, it's been laid out in, in the Hebrew argument that it, it, when you went into the temple, when you went into the tabernacle, you had to pass through a veil because that veil is what separated the presence of God and His Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest once a year could go through there and boy, he ran in and he ran out or he dropped dead and got pulled out. And they made atonement once a year. Again, all this has been laid out in Hebrews. We've been talking about this. But now that veil has been torn from top to bottom. God has reached down to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. And that triumphal in entry that we celebrate Palm Sunday, let me tell you, He's coming again in the real victory parade and He's going to bring His saints with Him. Those that are dead in Christ will rise first. There is a great victory coming. There is a triumphal entry. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Mount Sinai. And then we see Mount Zion. Notice in Mount Zion. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Remember, they were afraid to hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. But now he says, don't refuse the one who speaks now. Remember how Hebrews opened? Oh, and time's gone by. Prophets spoke. Miracles, angels. But now, Jesus speaks. And he says here, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? whose voice then shook the earth. 
But now He has promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. He said up in verse 22, You've not come to Mount Zion, but you have, I'm sorry, he says, You have, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, for Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. Why does the sprinkling of Jesus' blood speak better than that of Abel? Abel's is a blood recognition of judgment. Death. Yet Jesus' blood is our high priest sprinkled on the mercy seat, if you will, is what gives us grace. And he says, don't refuse that. Don't refuse that. These Jewish people were on the fence and they want to go back to Judaism. Don't refuse this. There's nothing else that can save you. He is the promised one. Check out this comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. God gave the law with fire. Mount Sinai, Exodus 20.18. Mount Zion, God brought the Spirit with fire, Acts 2.3. Kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. That was in the Old Testament. Guess what we got in the New Testament? Guess what we got in the New Covenant? Which, by the way, Mount, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Again, this is what Hebrews is laying out. The New Testament. Family. Family of God. That's who you are. Organic body with a priestly calling. 1 Peter 2.19 says, But you are a chosen royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 3,000 died at the foot of Mount Sinai. Exodus 32, 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. You know what happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 born of the Spirit, Acts 2.41. Then those who gladly received His Word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You see a contrast forming between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion? The law written on tablets of stone. That was the Old Testament. The New Testament, law written on the hearts of man. This is what the Hebrew writer has been arguing all throughout. And now he's coming to his final warning passage, his last and final plea to this people. And saying, don't forsake, don't neglect the greatest salvation. Don't shrink back to unbelief. Don't be impatient in your race. Run your race well. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. Don't fear God in the sense of, I can't. I can't come to, I can't, I can't do, I, you don't have to do, it's done. Reverential fear recognizes that I can do nothing of my own. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. But faith in Christ, the work is complete, the work is finished. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, 
The reality, Mount Sinai, you have not come. He said in verse 18, Mount Sinai, you have not come. And that was a tangible, physical, earthly mountain. Right? They could have touched it because it's physical and tangible, but they couldn't touch it because God said, don't touch it or you die. But the point of the text is that you've not come. Mount Zion, you have come. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... The kingdom of God resides within us, believer. God's kingdom is expanding. It's not an earthly right now, though it will be one day. When that which is shaken, the physical... Think about a tree. I had a little tree right here full of some uh, leaves that were loosely hanging on to it and you couldn't see the branches and we shook that tree really, 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 really hard and all those leaves fell off. And then what was left was the actual substance of that tree. Guys, there is a substance, a kingdom, that resides in the heart of every believer. When we receive uh, Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have been born again into the kingdom of God. We are a holy nation. We are ambassadors in a foreign land. But one day, God's not just going to shake a mountain. He's going to shake the nations. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. And those things that are here will be shaken and reality will be seen. And that's when the kingdom of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, will be ushered in. And we'll rule and reign with Christ. And paradise lost will be paradise restored. It's coming. It's coming. And this writer is warning these people. The nature, the mountain of fire and darkness, the nature of Mount Zion, a city of perfection. The mood, gloom at Mount Sinai. But at Mount Zion, verse 22, there's joy. Then we look at privileges, fear of even touching Sinai. But yet at Mount Zion, our names are recorded in heaven. We look at the comparison, the location, earth, and then we see Mount Zion. Heaven is heavenly. We are currently seated in the heavenlies in Christ positionally. The covenant, the old mosaic. And here, verse 24, the new covenant. Again, this is what the Hebrew writer's been talking about. Atoning blood, none was yet shed. In other words, the Levitical priesthood was not put in play at Mount Sinai yet. It was coming to point to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. But now in the new covenant, in Mount Zion, we have perfect atonement. Verse 24. Participants, the Jews under the law, and yet at Mount Sinai, we see here in Hebrews, verses 21 and 23, God present. We see the angels, verse 22. Remember, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. The church, the Old Testament saint, Jesus, these are all participants at Mount Zion. Listening. You notice the listening. They ask not to hear God. Verse 19. Uh, and then we see uh, they should listen to God speaking in verse 25 of Hebrews. What's the application? Again, plain and simple to that Jewish audience, specifically in the book of Hebrews. Never turn back to your past religion. Press on to your future reward with thanks and worship. This is what he's arguing. And I would argue again this morning, just as the author of Hebrews is, when we look at Mount Sinai, 
and we look at Mount Zion, there's no comparison. We miss it sometimes. You've heard this said, and I've said it and preached it myself, and this is wrong, and I want to clarify. We often have said, well, that's the Old Testament, and they're under law, and we're in the, Old Test- we're in the New Testament, and we're under grace. Old Testament law, New Testament grace. Now, that's partially true, but it's not the full truth. In fact, you can go back and read in the Old Testament many times where God says He is full of mercy, rich in mercy and grace. The very fact that God even shows up at Mount Sinai to offer them boundaries, there's grace. Here's a better understanding. And I think this is what the Hebrew writer is saying. I think this is at the very heart of what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying, okay, you want to go back to Mount Sinai. Yeah, there's, there's law. There's judgment. There's a little grace. But again, you fall short at the foot of Mount Sinai. You do not measure up. In the Old Testament, though there was law and grace, the New Testament, there's much grace... But there is judgment. And his point is this. You think Mount Sinai was bad? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think those dark clouds of smoke and the earth shaking like it's never shook, the tangible earth, you think that that scene was scary? You think that was a reason to fear God? You ain't seen nothing yet. And therefore, why would you turn to Mount Sinai? Why would you not turn to Mount Zion? Why would you not receive the gift of forgiveness and grace that Christ offers you as your high priest, the only one who can make us acceptable in the presence of God, the only mediator who shed blood atones for us? Why would you not receive that giftedness? Bottom line, gang, you're going to either... You're either going to trust in Christ and live by faith. Persevering, pressing on, saint. Or one day you will stand in the presence of a holy God. And the judgment that was poured out on Christ will not represent you. But instead, the judgment that will be poured out will be yours to take. Because you lived by the law you will be judged by the law. Every man naturally born into this world is under the curse of the law. The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you don't think you sin, look at the Ten Commandments. It is a great warning. It is a great plea of mercy and grace, but a warning nonetheless that as I look into that law, I recognize I'm broke. I am sinful, and I need a Savior. But at Mount Zion, Jesus Christ offers atonement. He offers sacrifice. He's rent the veil from top to bottom. He offers you grace, and He says, if by faith you will repent, put your faith and trust in Me, I will save you. Jesus Christ makes that plea to whosoever will. Let them come! But just as the plea with this audience, many refused and rejected and went back to what they knew. 
Many today are refusing to receive by faith Jesus Christ's atonement and instead they're going to bank on their own good works. They're going to bank on, I went to church all my life. Well, God, I did this and that for you and I did work this and I, hey, I volunteered here and I was a good kid. I didn't ever, you know, I didn't murder anybody. And It doesn't matter, guys. If you are guilty in breaking one law, you are guilty of breaking all law. That's in the Old and New Testament. James clarifies that for us. You cannot, I cannot stand on my own merit. Our good deeds are described as filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. There's only one way. His name is Jesus Christ. Do not refuse Him. Do not shrink back in unbelief. Do not neglect so great a salvation. Well, I'll get to it one day. Maybe one day I'll get it right. No, today is the day of salvation. Get it right today because we never know when we will be standing in the presence of a holy God. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Our application is actually found here in the closing verses. Let's look again, verse 25 and following. So I've looked at Mount Zion, I've looked at uh, uh, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. What's the application? Here's your application. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now He has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Guys, there is a shaking that's been promised, and it is coming. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. This world is temporary. The writer has just warned us, don't be Esau. Don't be Esau. He traded his birthright for a tangible cup of soup. I don't care if it was Campbell. It ain't that good. I like Campbell, but not at the sake of my soul and losing the blessing. And he's saying, why forsake the eternal for the temporal? There's a shaking coming, people. Your home is not here. Let's get our heart back in the race. Let's get our eyes fixed on the author and finisher. Your Christian faith is about living it out. We've come to Mount Zion. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Store up your treasures in heaven. Not here on earth. You see all this coming together? Guys, this world is temporal. Put our treasures in heaven where moth doesn't eat and rust doesn't destroy. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. 
Our God is a consuming fire. My question is, will He be the consuming fire of Mount Sinai in the day of judgment for you? Or has Jesus incarnate received that punishment upon Himself for you? Jesus is a consuming fire. And He's consumed your sin. He's consumed your punishment when the wrath was poured out upon Him at the cross of Calvary. And He offers you, in exchange for your life of sin, His life of forgiveness, purity, perfection. He will enrobe you in His grace. Don't refuse Him who speaks to your heart. Do not refuse His voice. Do not fear His voice. Receive what He offers you today. Let's pray. Father, speak. Your Word says You've spoken to us through Your Son Jesus Christ in these last days, and You have. You've made atonement. You're long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And just as the author of Hebrews was pleading with those Jewish members not to go back into Judaism, not to go back to Mount Sinai, but instead to embrace and receive the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, today we offer that same, that same gift of salvation. And if you're here today and you've looked into the mirror of God's law and you see you fall woefully short, let that be fear that motivates you to turn to Christ. Let that be something that, quite frankly, shakes you to the core. Because God in His mercy and grace offers that to you so that you might fear Him. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Gain understanding by faith today. Turn to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life. And by faith receive Him. And you know what you receive? Grace. You see, we've not come to that mountain. We've come to another mountain. And though I, time uh, got away today, it did not allow me to paint the beautiful picture of that heavenly realm, of the goodness and mercy and love and grace that's found in the person of Christ. And guys, He's not an angry God with a lightning bolt. Jesus Christ is a God who offers you mercy, forgiveness, love, redemption. He will make your life whole in that He will give you purpose and meaning. Now that's not to say your life won't be without suffering. In fact, that suffering is a mark that you are a child of His. Oftentimes the discipline is to educate us, to teach us, to grow us. But this world's not our home. There is a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a, there is a day, a kingdom that, that's present and yet will come. Are you a part of that? If you are, may God give us a healthy sense of fear to live for and to honor Him. And if you're not today, please, do not refuse His voice. Turn from your sin. Surrender your life and call upon the only name under heaven given amongst men by which to be saved. 
call upon the name of Jesus Christ today in this closing moment. He's listening. He's waiting. In Christ's name, amen.